It is Tuesday, May 11th. This is the Macro Setup brought to you by our presenting sponsor, IGUS, one of the fastest growing foreign exchange dealers in North America. Joined, as always, by my dear friend, Dan Nathan. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Guy Dami. We've got a little volatility here in, in global equity markets. It's kind of seeping into some other risk assets here. I feel like for the first time in a long time here in the macro setup, we have something to talk about as far as downside risks. In Unbelievable, risk assets. right? Incredible. Yeah, right? I mean, and later we're going to be joined by uh, Christopher Vecchio, the senior foreign exchange strategist at Daily FX. I'm excited to hear what he has to say, but you said it, Dan, a little volatility back in the marketplace. My <clears throat> sense is a lot of it's predicated on some of the comments we heard from the great Stanley Drunken Miller earlier today. Your thoughts, because I have many. Well, here, I mean, I think he's kind of preaching to your choir, if you will. I mean, listen, you've been talking about this for a very long time. And, you know, the idea um, that we have, you know, certain like excesses building in risk assets due to global central bank policy. I mean, you can go back and look time after time after time, each cycle, we know what happens, we know how it ends. The hard part is predicting it and figuring out how to take some chips off the table, right? When it comes to an investment standpoint, but what stuck out to you about his kind of warning about risk asset bubbles? Well, I mean, the fact that, you know, he's what he's basically saying is the Fed has overstayed their welcome. He's not questioning what they did at the time, but the fact that they're still hanging around in an environment where actually they should be completely reversing course mm-hmm. is giving him pause. And he said exactly what you just said, that there's no way he's smart enough uh, or has the crystal ball to sort of tell you when this is going to end. But he knows it will. And he's going to stay in this game. And he, I think he used that word. If he didn't, I'm, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. But you know, he's going to stay in the game as, as long as he can. He said they have pared down some equity risk over the last four or five months. But he sees what's going on. Um, but I think his comments really had far-reaching ramifications, not only for the broader market, but for interest rates and for the current and for and for U.S. dollar as well. I find it fascinating. Why? Listen, you know, we all get caught up in our dogma. I say it all the time. Try not to be dogmatic, but we all have our points of view. And for me, at least, it was refreshing to hear somebody sort of uh, verify some of the things I've thought for so long because. There are times when you start to question yourself and wonder whether or not you're on the right track. And I'm not suggesting I am, by the way, but it's somewhat refreshing to hear somebody of his stature sort of say a lot of the things that I've been thinking and saying for quite some time. Yeah. Here's the problem that you have, Guy, versus Stan Druckenmiller, is that he kind of like, you know, once every six months, he goes on to CNBC Squawk Box and he says it. And it sounds, you know, there's a scarcity to this guy who's just this legendary investor you and I talk markets every day, and we're very fortunate that we have people who want to listen, um, I suspect, to that. And so does it sound dogmatic if you're reminding viewers or listeners about some of the things that you think are going on? It doesn't mean that you're calling for a crash or calling for an explosion like this just because you say it frequently. Um, you know, you need to have some sort of framework for the way you're thinking about markets in general. So, you know, you and I don't have the benefit of, of popping in every once in a while or a couple times a year and sounding really smart. Yeah, sort of like if you remember, um, like Paul Lind in Bewitched, you know, he would okay. come in every yeah. once in a while. He wasn't on every episode. By the way, Bewitched is a great um, sitcom of the 60s. Anyway, let's talk about what has been going on, because this, yeah. this story dropped yesterday, I think during our show mm-hmm. on Fast Money, Dan, you know, the FDA is permitting use of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine <laughs> in kids ages 12 to 15. 
again, this is a what? Well, I mean, I think it's a wonderful thing for society. I don't know what it means for the broader markets, but I do think it has some ramifications, mm. Dan. Well, it's kind of interesting. Think back to early November <clears throat> where we were not particularly certain about what the vaccine, you know, when we we're going to get approvals, how many we we're going to get, how effective they were, what sort of availability we're going to have and what sort of uptake, what, what sort of um, demand that there might be from the public because they came so quickly. Well, we know what happened as far as investors were just like, this is it. It's on. They were kind of buying first, asking questions later. And I do think that when we're getting to a point now where, you know, we've basically met all of the demand for the vaccine. The markets or investors are at least pretty optimistic about where we are as far as the rollout is concerned. And so, you know, now we have these headlines that they're extending it to children 12 to 15. That's great news. There's no doubt about it. What does that mean to me, Guy? It means a wet, hot American summer, baby. Like, like, you know, um, summer camps are on. I think we can kind of assume that the path to reopening schools in August and September is on. And that actually means really big things for the economy, because if you look at that jobs data from Friday, we're seeing that there's certain groups in the employment um, you know, purview that are not going back into the, the, the workplace because of the dealing with kids and that sort of thing. So this is a big this is a big news. I'm not sure markets trade off of it, but I think it's good to know for the back half of the year. No, it's it is great news. But again, it just reinforces the reopening trade. And, and you wonder, again, what this pent up demand and what it's going to mean for consumer stocks. And we talk about mm-hmm. it all the time. But what does it mean? For this inflation story that now seemingly everybody's talking yeah. about, one of the top Google things seems to be inflation to the extent that you go to your Google machine and look these things up. But one of the reasons why we probably are selling off, and we can speak to this, Dan, is this concern mm-hmm. about inflation sort of rearing its ugly head. Although, again, something that our Fed seems to cherish or want, uh, but be careful what you wish for. And I think that's what we're seeing here right now. Yeah, it's not a mystery. I mean, guy, the Fed told us, you know, months and months and months ago, they were going to let inflation run hot in the course of this recovery because it's such a unique downturn. And then the response, you know, I think what's really important to remember is that in 2008, you know, as the financial crisis was unrolling here a little bit, you know, the, the response, the fiscal and the monetary response were piecemeal. Here, we hit this crisis over a year ago with $5 trillion of monetary and fiscal stimulus. It was front end loaded. This is a brand new monetary and fiscal experiment. So, you know, I I know that you're very critical of the Fed, you know, as far as the interest rate policy, fine. I I agree with the QE. I don't know why. This is the Druckenmiller's comment, why they're still buying what they're buying here. I know they're focused on this last 10 or 20 million people getting them back in the workforce. I don't think buying corporate bonds is going to do that. But the real question, Guy, and this is where I want to get your take, is that this headline from Bloomberg was talking about um, you know, tech stocks and the underperformance. We know the S&P 500, the Dow, are doubling the performance year to date of the NASDAQ, the tech-heavy NASDAQ. We know a lot of those work-from-home names started correcting back in November, man, after the first vaccine news. So we have stocks that are down, you know, 30, 40, 50%. These are primarily tech stocks, the Zooms, the, the Palantirs, uh, you know, the Fastleys, there's a whole, there's, and there's scores more. Do you think it really is inflation worries that's causing these stocks to decline? Well, I mean, yes, but I think to your point, it's also a valuation thing. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what dog wags <clears throat> what tail is that, you know, the movie says, but they're, clearly they're going hand in hand. And you say it all the time. You know, the price to sales uh, ratio of many of these stocks are ridiculous. Nobody really talks about them except you, but they're unsustainable. But the thing is, 
they were sustainable for an extraordinarily long period of time. And now everybody starts to focus on things you've been talking about for a while. And the fact that, you know, in terms of uh, PE multiples being at levels that don't make sense either, the market's waking up to it. In a zero interest rate environment or when rates are, you know, 50 basis points or so in the 10-year, nobody seems to care. As rates start to creep higher, uh, all of a sudden it becomes a bit of, you know, somewhat problematic. And I think that's what we're seeing now. And I also do think there are a lot of people are coming to the realization that, oh, by the way, 10 years, 160 today are probably going to be closer to 2%, you know, mid-June, early July. And I think that's got a lot of people scared. And I think they're running for the exit doors, trying to get ahead of something they all are anticipating. That's right. Here, let's hit this this headline from the Wall Street Journal, because there was a comment in our good friend, Peter Bookvar, <clears throat> who's been a past guest or multiple times on the macro setup. And he had a comment in his book report this morning about this, you know, investors rush into pick your poison junk bonds, guy. Mm-hmm. Look at this triple C rated bonds. Peter's point was that the other area of the market is crucial to watch from here in terms of gauging the appetite for things that are expensive is the CCC, the triple C area of the junk bond market. It should no longer be considered high yield. Yesterday's yield um, to worst close for the Barclays triple C index broke a new low of 5.66. The worst quality paper of the universe of companies that's still alive and that yield compares to a 20 year average of 12%. So 5.66 versus a 20 year average of 12%. What does that yeah. say to you about investors' appetite for risk right here? Well, I mean, it's, it says, you know, a picture is worth a thousand mm-hmm. words. It says you're getting pushed out the risk curve and you're yeah. pushing towards yield. It, don't, it doesn't make sense. Like if you were to put this in front of a college, economics class or finance class or some markets class and say, does this make sense? The entire class would say this is madness, but that's what's going on in real time. And look, you know, it works until it doesn't. And that sounds glib and it's, it's not intended to be. But I will tell you, we will look back and say, what were people thinking yeah. in May, June of 2021, um, pushing yields down to the levels we're seeing them in a junk, in, in this rated junk bond? It makes it makes oh, it zero sense. Of- but listen, but it's it's you know, you want to talk about unintended consequences? This is it. When you flood the system with um liquidity, this yeah. is what winds up happening. I, I think people forget all the warnings in mid to late 2007 of the stuff that was brewing in subprime and some of the CDOs and, and some of the, the issues that we had with uh, with um you know money market stuff. So like that was obviously a canary in the coal mine for what happened in 2008. I'm not saying that we're on the precipice of anything like that. Let me tell you what we are on the precipice. This next one, really quickly, and we're going to hit these charts later. You know, Bitcoin and, in, 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 you know, crypto in general has been a huge story over the last year. It was over $2 trillion in market cap. And I think this headline is really interesting because, you know, we're seeing, you know, a real divergence between Bitcoin, which is what everyone thinks of when you hear the word cryptocurrency, right? Well, all of a sudden, Bitcoin is really stalled. It's up you know, about 100% on the year, which is pretty substantial if you think about it with a, you know, $1 trillion market cap. Um, but, you know, that's basically what Apple did last year. It went from $1 trillion to $2 trillion. Um, It doubled. But what's interesting about this headline is that look at how they're talking about the froth. They're talking about Bitcoin is really consolidating here. And things like Ethereum have literally doubled in a month. So Ethereum right now has 45% the market cap of Bitcoin, which is the highest it's ever been. And we're going to look at the charts in a little bit. 
it. And so that is really, you know, obviously it's lockstep with what's going on with some of these other altcoins, some that you've never heard of, some that you don't want to repeat in front of your mother because the names are not particularly palatable and some that are just a flat out joke, Brendan. All right, guy, let's hit the charts like here that. because let's, let's Let, do it. We're gonna let's start hit with, the charts. And let's, I like what you did there, by the start way. Start me with the NASDAQ here. Start me with the NASDAQ. I got to Well, here. I mean, this is it. If you just look at it again, picture worth a thousand words, classic double top. I mean, we traded up to those levels, seemingly have failed. And by the way, that coincided, that double top has coincided to a certain degree with what we've seen in some of these individual names. So I look at this, your trend line that you drew, that green uptrend line is yeah. still in play without question. You well, know, my contention all along has been we're going to trade down to the 200-day moving average. And the fact that we haven't even gotten a whiff of that in over a year is extraordinarily and scary. And I think we're going to see it in the near future. So your trend line is in play. See what happens if when we get there, the 200-day moving average absolutely in play. Well, here's the thing, Guy Dami. I do the charts, and I just did them before the market opened here. And we have uh, we're taping this right after the market opened. It is really contending, as we say, with that trend line. Sure so, is. you know, that March low might be in play, which is not too far off from that 200-day moving average at 12,000. Um, four two five ish or so. So that's why we wanted to start with that. That would be an epic double top. And then once you get down to that March low, if you break that, I mean, you're really going to be like testing that 12,000 level, which was the breakout level from November, again, after the vaccine news. But here's the S&P 500. And you said something last night on Fast Money. You know, we were talking about the underperformance of the NASDAQ and you were saying, you're like, man, the S&P was at an all-time high just, just like minutes ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So talk to me. Why are we having this divergence right here? And what does this chart speak to you, especially with that 200-day down there at 36.83? We closed yesterday at 41.88. Well, it was staggering yesterday. One of the points I was trying to make, maybe clumsily, <laughs> was that you know the market didn't seem to care because the S&P <clears throat> basically yesterday, Monday, was within a couple handles of an all-time high. So you know, the S&P was saying there's nothing to worry about here. If you just looked at that one thing, it said there's, there's, the world is a great place. There's nothing wrong. Everything below the surface must be fine, and nothing could be uh, further from the truth, as they say. So I look at this chart and say, all right, once again, making new all-time highs in the S&P. And I said this last week, and it's funny because one of our crack producers, Brendan, who happens to listen to this thing, uh, said to me, I love that line about the higher it goes, the more scared you get. And I'll stand by that. The higher the market goes, the more scared I get. Now it's starting to give up the ghosts a little bit. Again, you drew that uptrend line. That's in play. Much like the NASDAQ, we haven't whiffed the 200-day moving average effectively since this time last year. And I think it's absolutely in play. And by the way, I'm not alone in this. There have been at least three or four different um, econ economists, analysts that have come on and said similar, not least of which Savita from Bank of America, Mike yep. Wilson, and Tony Dwyer. So I'll stand by it. Let's test that trend line that you drew and let's see what happens if and when we get there. 4,000. Here we come, SPX. I will say this, that every day I look up on the NASDAQ or tech stocks are correcting, you do see banks up, you see energy up, you see like some of the transports up, some, some of these kind of reopening trades, uh, the opposite of the work from home. So there's money going into them and maybe all those groups equal the top four or five tech stocks that have been correcting of late. Um, I'm not sure, but this is one I think is really interesting. The Russell 2000, the outperformance since November, since the vaccine, since the election, this was the, it's on trade basically. You know, it was basically the reopening, the infrastructure, the stimulus, 
uh, fiscal, that is everything. But look what's happened. I mean, we've been talking about this as kind of like a head head and shoulders top. Now there's a new right shoulder here. But that three-month consolidation, not particularly bullish guy. And I see, you know, all the way down there at 1906 is that 200-day moving average. We closed yesterday at 2212. We're obviously below that now here um, is 2,000 in the offing. Yes. And there'll be people that look at this and say, you know, we're making this consolidation and we've been in this consolidation pattern for the last four or five months and we're getting ready to take out the highs and make a new high. Okay, (laughs) that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is you get a point of diminishing marginal returns in terms of the 10 year where it's, you know, it's a tailwind for the Russell, the small caps, and that becomes a headwind very quickly. And I think that's what the market's been struggling with. If you look at this, by the way, it topped out just as peak vaccine headline news sort of topped out as well. That's not coincidental. So that 1906 level that you flagged in terms of the 200-day moving average, again, absolutely in play. And again, it'll be the first time we tested the 200 days since September, Dan. Yeah. So real quickly here, let's just go to the VIX. You know, we've been talking about this, that 20 level was the breakout level from early February or excuse me, early March, 2020. It kind of held that it cracked. Um, That was something that was, you know, as a teenager, giving some people um, a little caution here, especially given the headwinds, the potential for maybe a taper um, later on this year, you think that could cause some market volatility. So let's keep an eye on 20 level. I know with Chris Vecchio, we're going to get rates here, guy, but you've had a great call all year, actually for the last nine months on where rates were going here. And we seem to have found a little bit of support. Obviously, there's been a little bit of a downtrend since we hit, you know, 177 or something in yeah. late March here. So just speak to that support level because it goes all the way back to that breakdown level from February, March 2020 here. How are we doing above 1.4? And we had that Friday panic with that disappointing jobs number. Just speak to, you think we hold well, here? thank you. I appreciate you bringing that up because everybody has to tell you should rent the movie rounders this weekend at the blockbuster because matt damon learned what john malkovich's tell was and i learned what the market's tell was on friday when you had that disastrous job numbers yields plunge about 1.47 percent in the 10 year and then spent the rest of the day reversing higher that to me was everything i needed to know to say you know what one and a half is sort of the floor for the 10 year and we're definitely in my opinion headed up to two percent so You know, again, when good news is bad price action, however you want to look at it, the good news theoretically for bonds being a lousy jobs number on Friday, that didn't turn out to be the case. And here we are right above one six again in the 10 year. So I think we're headed higher. I think Friday was the tell. And I'll stand by that, Dan as we get into the back end of this year. Yeah, I'll just say this. I don't think rates are going anywhere. I don't think we're going to see 2% in 2021. I'm just telling you that. I know I'm in the minority here. I just think that some of the stuff that's going on right now doesn't augur well. And let me tell you something. If we were to see some of these geopolitical stuff kind of dust up and we're going to see maybe like the potential for a double dip uh, recession in Mm -hmm. Europe and maybe the deceleration in the back half of the year is a little more than people think. What are they going to do, guy? They're going to go and they're going to buy safe haven assets. When they buy U.S. Treasuries, what's going to happen? So I actually think rates go lower. Let's hit the Dixie, the U.S. dollar index. I know Chris Vecchio, who we're bringing in two minutes. That's why I'm speaking really fast. 
guy because we've got to get through this stuff. Here's the one-year chart of the Dixie. You've been calling for lower lows. You sell every rally here, man. We are basically now in this downtrend. We got to 93.5 in the Dixie. We know that the Jan low was down there um, just above 89. That looks like pretty decent near-term support. Talk to me. And then we have a five-year chart of the Dixie that shows that 2018 low. You think we're going to break the 2021 low and heading back to the 18 low and possibly the 16 yeah, and slide it all in terms of that longer-term chart because I think that's really what you want to look at as a five-year. Yeah. And I think this tells the story. Listen, I didn't think I didn't see I didn't see us going to ninety-four in the DXY at all. Uh, you did, by the way, good for you. But I, as now, as we sort of give it all back and sort of flirt with this ninety level again, which we're either side of, I think that eighty-eight-ish level um, that has been support now for the last three and a half years is absolutely in the crosshairs. I will tell you, everything going on in the world is extraordinarily dollar negative. And oh, by the way, getting back to how we started this, listen to what Stan Drunken Miller said about the dollar's uh, status as a reserve currency over the next 10 to 15 years. He was not particularly bullish. Good for Stan because he happens to be right. Should we bring Chris in now, Dan, or is there one more thing you want to go One to? more thing, and, and it really is about that reserve currency, the Bitcoin, the one-year chart here we have. Look at that uptrend that had been in place from the December lows here. It got rejected there just below 60000 um, you know, this week here. And I think going back to that headline that we had about Bitcoin's price action waning, and then let's just slide it over to Ethereum. Um, you know, if you look at the 200-day moving average, first of all, in Bitcoin, it's just below 39,000. Um, that's a place we were in February, just so you know. But Ethereum, it, you know, again, at 45% of the market cap of Bitcoin, it's gone up in a straight line. You know, guys, things don't, you know, trees don't grow to the sky here. And oh. I know there's a lot of really interesting things going on here. Um, but, you know, actually, what? This if one you think probably- about it, trees actually do grow to the sky, as it turns out. But now's a great time to bring in Chris Vecchio, <laughs> right? A senior currency strategist with Daily FX. He's graced us with his presence a number of times. Chris, you've heard what Dan and I have been opining about. Tell me why I'm uh, off my rocker. Well, I, I happen to think that you're on your rocker quite well. As you know, I've oh, also Chris. been a dollar bear myself. Uh, and to circle back what you said about uh, you know the beginning of this segment here with the wet hot American summer, it, it kind of feels like we're in the beginning of that Rick Springfield montage when they're playing <laughs> Love Is All Right tonight. You know, it starts Whoa. off all happy and it's it's pretty much innocent, but then all of a sudden it, it goes into them doing drugs in the alley. That kind of is like Fed policy right now. That maybe that's their theme song. Where for now, for the beginning part of the economic recovery, things were going all right, but. As we move into these later innings, things are not moving so all right. They're not so innocent. Uh, and this most recent jobs report kind of speaks to that. You guys were just talking about that. Uh, not really great. I know perhaps it's it, it's a seasonally adjusted weakness there. The actually non-seasonally adjusted figures over 1.1 million. Uh, but it's starting to feel like the Fed's losing control a bit here, which is why as inflation comes back into the picture, I'm liking silver. Silver is one of these currency or one of these precious metals rather that tends to do well during environments where U.S. real yields fall. And the uh, combination of higher inflation and lower perceived U.S. growth prospects has pushed up the uh, expected inflation and inflation term premiums within the U.S. Treasury 10-year nominal yield. So I do think that silver has a potential for higher prices from here on out. I agree with you. Real quick, I want to ask this question. This is coming out of left field, I know. But is silver to gold the way Ethereum is to Bitcoin? In other words, do you think people are looking at silver saying, you know what? Here's a $25 item that I can buy. It sort of mirrors gold. Same way, in my opinion, people are saying 
you know, Ethereum was this 2000 thing as opposed to the 60,000 thing in the form of Bitcoin? Or is that just too simplistic? I think it's a little simplistic because there are different uses for both silver and gold, just like there are for Ethereum and Bitcoin. Ethereum unto itself is actually a really well-connected network that you can simply just plug into. Uh, I, I myself think that Ethereum may be the way forward in the crypto industry if they're going to build upon one of the two major coins. But you know, that's another discussion on Twitter. Chris, Chris, no, no, you're you speaking Dan's language right well, now. Yeah, just so you know, I got to get in here because you know, there's been many of guests on the macro setup or fast money who've tried to tag guy with a nickname <laughs> and simple guy might really stick here. I just want to say that. So, um, well, that's I dig really- it, man. I'm with you. Well, I love your take on silver. I think the last time you were on, you were talking about silver here and that you like that flag. You're playing for a breakout. Um, so, you know, a simple guy, you know, he's been talking about gold finally breaking out of that downtrend that it's been in since August. Where are you on gold? I do like gold as well. You know, gold itself seems to be that uh, traditional vehicle for speculation. If Bitcoin is the new vehicle for speculation, this would be the traditional one. But when we take a step back and look at the weekly chart here, I went all the way back to 2010. And after breaching that high that we had in in September 2011, it appears that we've just been flagging the last few weeks and months. And so with this environment that's very much like the 2009-2010 window before austerity, we have lots of easing from the fiscal side. We have low rates from the Fed. That's when gold did the best. And so I think that we are kind of coming to terms with that where the Fed is seeing some mishap and misshapen labor market numbers say they're going to stay lower for longer. But in reality, the economy is doing much better than the headline figures indicate. So I like gold here. I like silver here. I just think that silver, like copper, for example, continues to outperform gold as there is a inherent growth bias to this environment. And let's talk about copper because that's your next chart. And I think that speaks to exactly what you're saying here in terms of the economy. Right. I mean, I've been talking about copper for quite a few months now. I still think it makes a lot of sense as a growth proxy, as a proxy to an electric vehicle, green economy future. You have to use about 10 times more copper to create an electric vehicle than a standard diesel vehicle. We're also talking about fixing the U.S. grid. You need a lot of copper to build infrastructure, if it's roads, if it's uh, the electrical systems that are used in any of these transportation networks, we need more copper. So uh, I I do think that there's significant demand here. The technical structure looks great after just breaching the all-time high set in 2011. Even with a brief pullback, copper looks like it's still aiming higher. And as we say, Dr. Copper speaks well for the global economy's health right now. Yeah, what doesn't speak well is the U.S. dollar, though. And I know you, you, you started this by saying you're in my camp. I appreciate that. What are you looking for here? Right. And unfortunately, I didn't scroll back far enough, but it does look like we're still working through the throes of that double top. And recent price action has been pretty pristine. We had this rising bearish wedge within a potential bear flag following the longer term breakdown. We're now sliding through that bear flag support. It looks like we have the lows that are coming into focus, not just from February, but uh, from this year. And ultimately, this combination of higher inflation expectations and lower perceived U.S. growth in the very near term that undercuts the U.S. real real yield picture. And that's bad for the dollar. And this mm-hmm. you know, un- goes along with everything we've been talking about, not just today, but for the last several episodes, uh, where the dollar seems to be you know, the, the pagan at the stake, the witch to burn, uh, so that the Fed can continue to push forward with this you know, egregious policy in some regards. Chris Vecchio <laughs> is wise beyond his years, Guy Adami. First of all, you didn't even get his big that was a big time poll. You know, you, you basically had wet, hot American summer on top of mind here, man. I, I, were you even born when that movie came out? I mean, that, that must be in your rotation at the blockbuster. That's a Netflix. That's a Netflix show, right? 
Well, oh, the wait, movie that's came a movie. out 20 years ago. Yeah, no, no, well, I know. Well, of course, enough. of course. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so you just you Netflix and chill during the quarantine with your gold, your silver, and your wet hot American summer here. Um, you know, guy was calling Chris this, <laughs> calling it. He calls it this every other day. A witch's brew. When you have the uh, rate expectations higher, inflation higher, dollar lower here. What is your take on that? And 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 really, can we see this divergence between you know uh, U.S. yields and the dollar? Oh, I, I think, and I've actually adopted that term, which is for from Guy, and I do apologize for taking it, Guy, uh, without licensing. Which is what's going on over there? <laughs> but I, but I will say, you know, this is really uh, a witch's brew because it's not what you should expect to happen, right? When people see the you know textbook macro discussion, higher yields, stronger currency, and so why is this currency not strengthening when yields are going up? And right now, uh, it, it does appear that there are some pushes higher with the inflation term premium within the yield itself, but not enough to drive the overall 10-year higher. And this is a problem for the dollar because, again, we're seeing that real yield erosion. I don't think this necessarily speaks to an environment where even if the U.S. 10-year yield were to go up to 2%, it would be an environment that the dollar benefits from. So I'm still very cautious on the greenback here. It could be one of those head scratches where all of a sudden we get a bit of a widow maker in the U.S. Treasury market, much akin to the JGBs where everyone's saying, well, dollar's going to go up because U.S. yields are going up and it keeps declining. Chris Vecchio dropping pagan widow maker, simple guy. I mean, <laughs> I love this whole thing. And listen, you know, we line up and, and a lot of the things we're thinking for sure. And I, we appreciate your contribution to this. Um, give us some parting gifts, uh, Chris, as we get out of here. Sure. You know, after last week's non-farm payrolls report, I think there was a little bit of a, an overreaction to the market. But as you guys were just talking about, stocks are, what, two days removed uh, from those all-time highs when you look at the S&P. It looks like there's just still some asset allocation redistribution going on within stocks themselves. You know, NASDAQ tech is inherently deflationary. And so when we see NASDAQ pulling in the way that it is, it almost kind of talks to the fact that we're seeing an improving underlying U.S. economy. So this news about Pfizer is great. Uh, what we're seeing overall, even though vaccination rates are stalling out, it, it does speak to the fact that we're going to have a really strong summer. Atlanta Fed GDP now is still talking about 11% growth for Q2. And so it looks like we are going to have a, a bang up second quarter here in the United States. Good thing with 11% growth, we're buying $120 billion of assets a month. But that's for another show, Dan Nathan. You want to sort of close this out, Dan? Quickly, please. Yeah, listen, I think um, Chris really tied uh, tied a lot of stuff together here. I think his take on silver is really interesting. I think that's one, especially if we're starting to see uh, investors look to reallocate. As he used the term, you might see mo money moving more into silver and to gold. You could see, um, you know, this breather that Bitcoin's taking also, um, you know, be be one of the kind of impetuses for that. Um, listen, you know, one thing when I hear a lot of smart strategists like Chris or guys like Guy, you know, say, you know, which is brew about a dollar going lower and yields going higher. You know what that says to me? That says to me that that we are kind of in uncharted territory. When we're in uncharted territory, that means that some weird things can happen, you know, dislocations in markets. And I feel like this summer could be like one of those. I don't mean that we're going to say equity is going to crash or this, that, or whatever. But we've been in this period of where volatility has really been dampened. Um, and if we were to see uh, volatility across major risks, assets, and things going in different directions, that's something that will be pretty uncomfortable. And I think you just have 
have to remember, you know, what it felt like in February, late February, you know, March 2020. It's really been that long since we've had risk assets going in a bunch of different directions. And I think people can get caught off sides. So, you know, let's be careful of buying highs and selling lows. If you Correct. Will. And you don't want to be caught off sides ever, Dan, Nathan. You want to wait till the, the quarterback snaps or the center <laughs> snaps the ball, as yeah. they say. Anyway, ha, this has been the macro setup. I want to thank Christopher Vecchio, Senior Currency Strategist at Daily FX, for joining us again. Always great to have him on. I want to thank you, Dan Nathan, for being here on the Macro Setup, as always. And oh, by the way, I want to thank our audience who have been steadfast in their support. I also want to thank our presenting sponsor, IGUS, one of the fastest growing foreign exchange dealers in North America. Say what you got to say, Dan Nathan. Yeah, I want to thank IG and Chris and obviously Simple Guy. Thanks for coming out here, man. Keeping it simple. Uh, see you next week. See you week. later. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of The Macro Setup. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe in podcast stores so you never miss an episode. We'll see you next week.